I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Larry Swedro, Director of Research for Buckingham Strategic Wealth and the BAM Alliance, and author of Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement. As we get older, most of us look forward to a life free from work, but the truth is that retirement can be highly stressful and complex, and all too many Americans fail to plan for it. Successful retirement is no different than successful investing. Those who fail to plan, plan to fail, says Larry Swedro of Buckingham Strategic Wealth. With decades of experience, he has a plethora of insights to offer from why financial planning should be only one part of retirement preparation to the unique issues women face when it comes to retirement. Uh, Swedro has been featured and interviewed in the Wall Street Journal, CBS Money Watch, and Forbes.com. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here. Larry. Thanks for having me, Catherine. So let's start right from the beginning. Uh, you talk about, as I said in the introduction, how are we going to or how do we mitigate the stressfulness and complexity of retirement, which is what your book is all about. Uh in the beginning, you talk about in the book, and I guess maybe this is the first question, why financial planning really should only be one part of financial preparation. What do you mean by that? So the, the first thing, as, as you touched on, is that while most people at least hopefully begin and develop a financial plan, far too many of us fail to develop a life plan to have a meaningful life in retirement. And the fact of the matter is that most of the people in the workforce, they typically get their social connections, are their friends and people they work with every day, their intellectual stimulation, the satisfaction they get from a job well done, uh, and the challenges of work uh, from an intellectual stimulation standpoint. Those disappear, both of them, uh, when you retire, unless you have figured out other things to replace them, then what we find is, number one, depression often sets in. The divorce rate jumps way up. Most people are probably shocked when they hear that the fastest growing uh, cohort of divorces are what are called silver divorces. And even worse is that the highest rate of suicides are retired men uh, who have lost meaning in their life. So that's why we put the first chapter of the book to focus on developing a plan to have a meaningful life, reason to get up in the morning, something to stimulate your intellectual uh, uh, capabilities as well. So that's one part. And the other So let's stop plan. there, Larry, because that's a huge part, because I want to stop you there, because let's yeah. talk about the specifics. Now, we get it. People retire, they get divorced, they get depressed, all of those things that you described, uh, because their job gives them meaning, and then that's gone. So what do you do specifically? How do you mitigate that so it doesn't happen? Well, uh, as you mentioned, if you uh, fail to plan, you're likely to fail. Uh, I recruited a friend of mine uh, named Alan Spector who wrote a wonderful book, Your Retirement Quest, uh, that helps people and one envision what a meaningful life in retirement is, provides you with the tools uh, like creating and envisioning what's your perfect day, what it looks like by the hour, and then maybe even practicing uh, those days. Uh, 
So maybe you, during a vacation, you go to spend a few days with Habitat for Humanity, or you work as a candy striper in a hospital. Uh, you can go and take college classes. Whatever it is that you, uh, for your own personal needs, can get well-being uh, from your life and stay connected socially. So that's the uh, way you avoid uh, the, the failure is to develop a plan and practice it, just like anything else. Yeah, I see a lot of people in there, and these are friends and even colleagues who say who who have or retired at sixty five. And what happens is, it seems to me they're biding their time. You know, it, what if you have had had this very, um, you've had a big position in a company, or you've owned your own business? Is it? Can you go and become a candy striper and feel just as good as you did when you were in your job because I see a lot of people sort of trying to fill in I'm thinking of some of those things so that they as I say again biding your time you don't want to do that you have to have something that's equally as satisfying but it's done it's a different a different venue I guess yeah absolutely and for every person it's going to be different I do have a good friend uh, who when he retired became a candy striper that was his way of giving back and giving joy and uh, to other people, knowing he was helping. I actually have two uncles, both who became tax preparers and donated their time to the elderly, to doing returns for them, either free or cheap. Uh, I've had friends who have become big brothers uh, to uh, underprivileged kids in the inner city. Um, and you could go on and on. There are mentoring programs for uh, business executives to help others, uh, young executives, uh, and also uh, older people who are going through transitions. Maybe they're laid off and having a hard time finding a job. There are many, many ways that you can find intellectual stimulation. And as I said, it could be taking college classes, uh, whatever it is that's going to give meaning for you, uh, could even be learning a new language and playing bridge or whatever it is, but it, you need two things. One, that's something that you find emotionally and intellectually stimulating, and number two, it's got to give you that social connection so you get out of the house, meet people, uh, and can find value in those relationships. Those are the two keys that have been found to lead to successful lives. And that makes a lot of sense. But I also want to go back to one thing you said, and I'm not surprised because I actually had a guest on the show who wrote a book about divorce. This, what did you call it? The silver something divorce. People get the silver people divorce. Get yeah, silver divorce, which which is a phenomenon or a trend, I guess. How do you, uh, when you do get uh, when you retire, and maybe you in your oh with your spouse or your partner, more often than not. Uh, what do you do so that that there isn't more of this <clears throat> silver divorces uh, so that you can get along with your partner? You know, you're used to not being together all the time. I mean, I, I see that as one huge issue, especially from a social work perspective. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There's that old joke, I married you for better or worse, but not for lunch. Uh, <laughs> and people have had their own lives and their own friends and their own routines, uh, and now all of a sudden the spouse is hanging around and they, the spouse now wants to spend time with you and you've got other things that are also important. So that's why it's important to sit down as a couple together 
and plan out what that retirement is going to look like to make sure each person has their own fulfilling things or you know it's likely that you're going to run into problems uh so i would urge people to um get uh, alan specter's book i think it's wonderful mitch anthony also wrote a wonderful book called the new retirement mentality uh and in my book for every chapter where we think it's important we have recommended readings uh to a to expand on what we can cover in a short chapter. You also talk about, well, four questions that people should ask themselves, whether it's time to retire. So what are those four questions when you sit down? I imagine if you're, well, if you're alone, you ask yourself, but if you're in a relationship, you want to sit down with, with your partner and ask these questions, I would imagine. Yeah, so we ask, do you have enough money? Can you retire? A good rule of thumb for people to use is if you have 30 times your spending needs after you're taking into account your Social Security. So an example might be you need $60,000, you're getting 30 from Social Security, therefore you need an additional 30,000. If you have 30 times that or 900,000 put away, you're in pretty good shape and you can at least consider retiring. Uh, the second question is, have you had enough? Uh, some people, despite a successful career, are ready to retire. Uh, in my case, uh, my answer has always been the day I consider it going to work, I'll retire. To me, it's always been enjoyment. Uh, I get a lot of pleasure of being able to help people and do the research and writing. So that's not an issue for me. Uh, third one is, will you have enough to do so you have that fulfilling, meaningful life? And then the last one is regarding the topic we just talked about, uh, does your spouse or partner want you home 24-7, if you will? And you have to be able to plan that life together, not just your own. Yeah. All right. So that's a uh, that's an important. I think that's a, that's such an important. I don't. I'm calling it an exercise, but that's something that we all really need to do. But most people don't do that, do they? Or at least I no. don't see that. I mean, they have to read your book, obviously, and maybe they will begin to do that. But it's sort of. A, I'm 65. I'm not 65, but you say I'm 65. Time to retire. And people sort of have these old. Some of the plans are old plans that they have been thinking about what they you know in terms of when they retire and they don't really sit down and reevaluate their their lifestyle what they want and also maybe this is another question but living longer because you talk about that in the book i mean you retire at 65 you might live to be 95 what are you going to do for those next yeah 30 you're, you're years? absolutely right that's actually one of the challenges we talk about in the book uh that today's retirees have it much more difficult in in one sense than Say my parents, uh, when I was growing up, you hardly knew anybody who was, say, over 75 years old. That was really old. Uh, I'm 67 and 75 no longer seems so old. But uh, the average 65-year-old couple, the second-to-die life expectancy is almost 90. Uh, and that means half the time, one of the two of you will be alive beyond that age, so you really need to plan on a 30-year retirement. Uh, so you need a large enough pool uh, to do that. That's one of the reasons why, you, you know, there used to be this rule of thumb of, you know, you could spend 4% of your portfolio every year. So 
that if you invert 4%, you get 25 times whatever your spending needs are. Today, for various reasons, as we discuss, one of them is that you live longer. I would say the 3% is the new 4%. So what are you going to do for the next 30 years of your life to stay intellectually challenged, stay connected with your friends? Uh, you really need to plan for it or... It's our experience, uh, and the social research shows you're likely to fail, and I don't think people want to be divorced. Uh, they don't want to commit suicide. They don't want to be depressed. So you have to put in the effort to sit down and write up a plan, and Alan Spector's book does a great job. Um, we just described the basics in the chapter. Well, I think also, or um, I guess I should ask you this question, now that we have access to the Internet and so much stuff that's online, uh, it seems to me that would make it a much better and easier and maybe even a less complex retirement uh, for people who are aging, maybe who aren't physically able to get out there uh, as much as they used to when they were younger, but they can really utilize the net to be connected in some ways. No, that's certainly true. You can, uh, I mean, I play bridge with people all over the world online. Uh, and you obviously can use things like Facebook and social media to stay connected. Uh, but still, being around people and not isolated in your home uh, makes a big difference. So uh, it's at least my own personal experience. You have to find a way if you're physically able Get out of the house. Um, one of the important things we even talk about in the chapter is planning on exercising. That not only has help uh, benefits in your attitude and your health, but it's been proven to help you avoid depression. And now the research is showing it actually reduces the risk of cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, etc. So part of your day should be getting out and taking that walk in the park or uh, whatever it is, but get out and exercise is part of that plan to have a successful life in retirement. Yeah, and I think the uh, the aging population, of course, has been used to as it changes because it, and evolves, has been used to doing these kinds of things. I mean, exercising and you know being aware, you know, body image and all of those kinds of things have been very out there in the past twenty years. So this new aging population is going to be very familiar with that kind of stuff. I, I think you know uh, going I, to I, the gym. Yeah, I think you're basically right. My wife. Uh, uh, she teaches water aerobics. She's 65, and the average age of her, quote, students uh, is probably close to 80, and they get out there almost every day in the water for an hour and are exercising, and they spend most of the time socializing, just chatting about whatever they're talking about. So it gives them those two benefits of physical activity and social. That's part of planning your perfect day, if you will. Let's talk about women, because I mentioned that in the beginning in the introduction, and you talk about this in the book, that retirement for women may be somewhat different in terms of the planning issues. What are they? What are the differences between the men and the women? Yeah, well, uh, unfortunately, the case is that women actually, on average, have a much more difficult path. Uh, we'll go through a few of the reasons. We highlight 12 in the book. One, women tend to earn less, partly because they're often taking time out of their careers, number one, to have children, and number two, often to take care of 
the parents of one of the spouses, uh, not necessarily their own. They tend to be the ones who take on that role. Number two, they tend to live longer, so you obviously need a, l- a larger pile of money. Uh, and also, besides earning less, so you have a more difficult time saving, that also means you're getting less Social Security benefits. Uh, they also, interestingly, start to invest later and also become more conservative in investing for whatever reasons. And so, therefore, they don't put as much money into equities, which have, over the long term, of course, higher expected returns. Uh, you know, so yet they are facing with all of these issues, and I would add two others. Um, number one is women who get divorced or a widow tend to not remarry as often as men do for a variety of reasons. Um, so there, that's a problem. And women are more targeted uh, for elder abuse, a subject we touched on earlier and is a major chapter in our book. So you have to be able to plan for all of these things, taking them into account um, in developing your plan. You talk about elder abuse, and I think in the book you mentioned that more than 30, this is a, really quite a statistic, 36 billion per year is stolen from elders in the United States alone. $36 billion a year is stolen. Uh, I guess, and this may be the last question, how does that happen and how do you stop it? How do, you, how do we protect ourselves? Well, a lot of it is because people know that the elderly are more easily abused and tricked. There are all kinds of scams, especially now with the Internet availability. But the sad part is that often it's the case that it's a family member, a child, a relative uh, who is abusing. And when you're in cognitive decline, it's easy to take advantage of them. Uh, I've also seen cases where parents uh, have kids who have drug problems or other issues, and, you know, out of love, they ruin their own retirement and spend the money that they really need trying to, quote, save kids when tough, lover, tough love would maybe be a better solution. Uh, there's all kinds of problems that we talk about in the chapter, giving real-life examples uh, and then address the issues of how to at least minimize the risk by putting in place a plan, having durable powers of attorney for health and financial matters for, with trusted family members who are also given the authority to declare you cognitively impaired and so that they have the power to take over managing your financial matters because too often we resist it. We don't think we're in trouble. We don't like giving up control. And then you're easily subject to abuse. Yeah, and I think that issue of giving up control is one issue. Uh, I think one issue, another issue is, particularly with Americans, we don't really like to think about, we think we're, uh, we don't like to think we're mortal, we're immortal, and we're not going to die for some reason. You know, it happens to everybody else, but not really to me. Well, it does. So you talk about preparing your heirs, and we're talking about what? Preparing the responsible heirs. Um, how do we prepare the heirs? What, what do we do? I mean, specific steps that we need to take. Right. That's really a very important subject. Unfortunately, in America, money is often a taboo subject. 
and lots of family members never discuss it. I've met lots of high net worth people who have never told their children how much money they have, how much they're going to inherit. Uh, they never discuss things like passing on their family values and how to manage money. So we talk about a few things. One, you need to sit down and have open and honest conversations about what your estate plan is, what you plan to leave to each child. Uh, often, uh, you know, people rightly make the decision not to treat each child the same. You may have one child who's highly successful doctor and she's making a lot of money. She may not need a lot of help. On the other hand, the son may have had difficulties uh, and uh, so you leave more to them. You treat each one fairly. That doesn't mean the same. But if you want to avoid the daughter in that case, feeling neglected, you didn't love her, you need to explain to her why you're going to be doing that. So you want to explain all your intent. You also need to have documents in place so the children know uh, that they can take control. They need to know where your bank accounts are, where your insurance policies are, or any important document, uh, who your attorney, who your financial advisor, where the bank accounts are. We could go through many issues where people die and they, the kids uh, don't even know where the assets are. And so assets just go wasted sitting in bank accounts and no one can claim them. Uh, one other point, Catherine, I would make, I think it's really important. In my case, we have a family meeting every year. Uh, we go through where all the documents are, what the net worth is, uh, and we also talk about where we're going to give money to charity. Uh, my IRA and my wife's are not going to go to my children. It will go to a Swedro Charitable Foundation, which my children will be the deciders of where that money goes. So I hope that will keep the family together and passing on these values we have about giving back. We've been blessed uh, to have a great life and make a sufficient money to do that, and I want to pass on those values. So those are some of the things we talk about in that chapter, even how to create a family wealth mission statement to talk about the purpose of the wealth from the family's perspective. Well, the, the two words that come to mind as you're talking are transparency, transparency and transparency. I guess that's, I'll say that three times, and sitting yeah. down and having the conversation. I think that's a great idea that you sit down year every year and do it, even if you think you don't need to, but you do have the conversation. When you talk about foundations or passing on the family wealth to uh, to other people because you, 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 you want to give back, how does that work with kids who maybe have very different uh, views in terms of where they want that wealth to go. You, you have, you know, they may live in different states. They may have very different objectives. So how do you put all of that together so that you're on the same page, let's say, the heirs? Yeah, well, that's really an important issue. And the key is that you have to have a family meeting to discuss the issues. You want to make sure you get the kids' input into the decision so they're not just handed a fait accompli. They feel they've participated in that decision-making. It may not end up with the way they want it in every case, but at least they will be able to understand your thinking 
and your logic behind it and what the plan is all about. There are even good coaches who you can hire. We work with several behavioral psychologists who have specialties in family practices who will run a meeting like that uh, if you feel you need help in doing so. Uh, there's a wonderful book by Roy Williams and Vic Preser called Preparing Your Heirs. Uh, again, in our book, we recommend other books that go into great detail. And that book greatly influenced me and led me to be what I call open kimono with my kids. And we have these family meetings every year. They know every penny of our net worth, where it is, where all the documents are, who our advisors are, where we give money to charity. We even ask them for their input. Where would they like some of the money to go? Uh, and so they're involved, and that's what needs to take place. Sadly, in America, it's my experience anyway, the vast majority of families' money is a taboo subject, and that can lead to all kinds of problems later. Yeah, and I think that's true, and it continues to be true. They talk about Americans will talk about their sex life, they'll talk about their children, they'll talk about almost health, almost anything, but not about money, not about how much you, not even what your salary is or how much you earn. So that is an issue. I think that continues to be an issue. Maybe for the average person, would you say sitting down, not necessarily just with the family, but maybe you have to sit down with your accountant or your lawyer or somebody, uh, a, pro- a professional, that that too may be a good idea? Well, certainly you want to sit down with an attorney to help you draft an appropriate uh, estate planning documents. That's absolutely key. Uh, and you want the family members to have input because those documents should express not only uh, your ability to minimize, say, estate taxes, but where you want the money to go, the purpose of the money. So, for example, you might say, I'm going to leave a certain amount of money to my son, but in order for him to get anything more than, say, the interest income uh, generated by a trust you may have set up, they have to be fully employed. Now, maybe they want to be a painter of houses or a social worker. That's fine. They don't have to be you know, a doctor or a lawyer, but in order, you want, may want to give them an incentive uh, there. So those things are important to sit down with an attorney who's not just experienced in minimizing your estate taxes and writing a durable power for health and financial matters, but who's a good listener and knows how to ask the questions for the purpose of the money and what's the mission, what do you want to accomplish, what incentives. So absolutely, having a good attorney like that can really add value. And, of course, having a CPA involved is part of the team. Uh, In my case, we're a, a wealth advisory firm, so we act as a quarterback on the financial services team coordinating between your insurance person, your attorney, and your accountant to make sure everything is integrated into a well-thought-out estate tax and risk management, meaning insurance of all kinds. Well, everyone should get out there and get Larry's book, Larry Swedrow, your complete guide to a successful and secure retirement. Larry, give us a website we can go to, more information about you and or the book. Yeah, well, at Buckingham Strategic Wealth uh, is the, the name of my firm. Uh, you can find us on the Internet uh, at BAMAdvisor.com. 
and you can go to Amazon and pick up a copy of your complete guide to a successful and secure retirement. I've also written 15 other books on investing from behavioral finance to more about uh, you know, the investment side as well. So if you enjoy this book, you can check out some of the others. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It's been my pleasure, Catherine. Okay. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is coach, speaker, and author, Catherine Solman, author of Ambition Redefined, Why the Corner Office Doesn't Work for Every Woman and What to Do Instead. When we reframe what it means to be ambitious, we acknowledge that challenging, lucrative work can be found in many flexible ways that favor personal satisfaction over public applause, says Catherine Solman. Her main message is that up isn't the only way forward for women, and it's not and it, and it is okay. It's okay to not want the C-suite. Women must stay in, keep working toward financial security in a flexible way alongside caregiving roles, and that society as a whole needs to be or needs to redefine our definitions of ambition. 
She's a recognized leader in helping women navigate the many stages of work and life and is a frequent media resource for the Today Show, NPR, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Money, and CNBC. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Nice to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. We're going to be talking about, I, I guess, what I said in the very beginning of my introduction, reframing, and the title of your book, Reframing Ambition for Women. What does that mean? How do we reframe ambition? What does ambition mean, and what does it mean for women? Why is it different for us in the workforce? Well, I think that um, there is a... A feeling within uh, the workforce today that all women are champing at the bit to get to the C-suite, to break the glass ceiling, uh, to be the president of the United States. And, uh, and certainly there are women who want to reach the highest echelons of business and government, and they should absolutely have a path to do so. Um, but to say that that is a monolithic aim for all women is, is really not true. Um, and there, there seems to be this, this stereotype that if you're not aiming for the C-suite, then you're really not ambitious. And if, if you're not aiming for the C-suite, then you're, you're letting down the sisterhood. And so what, what I'm trying to say is that you can be an ambitious woman without aiming for the C-suite. And I'll stop you there because I want to ask you, I'm going to just stop you for a second because I want, not aiming for the C-suite, uh, not to have that monolithic ambition, why doesn't that work for us? Obviously, that's what you just talk about in the book, but why isn't that a good thing for women necessarily? Why shouldn't well, we aim to be CEO of the company or president of the United States or uh, that, that, I'll stop there. Well, it's not that it isn't a good thing. There, for whatever woman who wants to do that, that's, that's her choice. Um, and it would be a wonderful thing to have a woman president or to have more women at the top of corporations. What I'm saying is that let's not make all women feel that that's what they need to do or um, to make them feel that they're not ambitious if that's not what their, what their aim is. And there's, you know, we have to recognize that women uh, have two major caregiving roles alongside a professional role. They've got children and they've got aging parents, and sometimes at the same time. And women... Um, no matter how much millennial uh, men are doing more around the house or picking kids up from school once in a while, um, the majority of women still bear the brunt of most of the caregiving for children and for aging parents, even if the aging parents are their in-laws. So you can't, you know, you can't um, ignore this. And th- those are extremely time-consuming jobs, and I'm not, I'm not talking about, um, you know, whether it's morally right to stay home or how much time you should spend with your kids. I'm just talking about the reality that most of that caregiving 
falls on women. And so in most cases, women don't have the personal bandwidth for those huge jobs. So women have to incorporate, and and this makes a lot of sense, obviously. Uh, The fact is that that's what we do. We are caregivers. We do that most of the time or more than our partners do with our parents and our kids. So I guess what you're saying is, so personally, we have to take a look at that and incorporate that into our job aspirations. But also, on the other side of it, businesses have to do that too, or we have to convince them, or we have to be... I, I, we have to be out there and know how to um, be able to incorporate these responsibilities into a job and what convince our bosses or the people we work with. I mean, let's talk about that because obviously that's what you, you do talk about that in the book. How do we do that? I mean, you talk about flexibility, for instance, and flexibility doesn't just mean, as you say, you know, can I work at home on Fridays and expect your boss to say yes, and and that's the end of it. That's really not what we're talking about in terms of flexibility. Most women who um, who want who are currently working and want flexibility in their in their current job, that's that's pretty much the sum total of how they ask for flexibility. You know, at the end of a meeting, they might say, "Can I work from home from fr- on Fridays or two days a week or whatever?" And um, you know, most bosses would prefer to have everybody in their view. And you know, at the end of a meeting, when this you know, when you lob this simple request, um, you're not always going to get the answer that you want. And so if you want flexibility in your current job, you need to make a professional pitch for flexibility, like you were pitching a client and, and talk about, um, okay, let's just say you want to work from home two or three days a week. All right, well, what does that mean exactly? You need to talk about what kind of home office setup that you have, that you have a productive workspace that's not the kitchen table, that you, um, you know, you have the equipment that you need, and if you don't, is the employer going to duplicate it for you, or are you going to pay for it? Um, how are you going to handle managing people and um, managing projects? What kind of communication tools and and project management tools are you going to be using? How are you going to attend meetings? You know, all these details that the employer needs to know that you've thought them through and that you're not going to let anything fall through the cracks. And And also, you need to let the employer know that this could benefit them too. Um, so, for example, if you are suggesting that you work a different schedule, maybe you would be able to service clients in other time zones. So, so that's the that's the first thing. To, so you're actually creating uh, a business plan. You're, it sounds. I mean, it really is a business plan for doing business at home. It's it's very specific, Absolutely. as you say. Yeah, and very detailed. Absolutely. And <laughs> and when women say they left their job because it, it absolutely was not possible to have any flexibility, and I've been coaching women since 2002, and I've I've sp- spoken to thousands of women through all the you know different women's events and things that I've done, and so many women tell me that it was totally impossible to have flexibility in their jobs. But then when I dig deeper, I find out that they made that 
that, you know, simple ask and didn't, didn't do the, you know, the more professional pitch. And if you do the professional pitch, you're, most of the time you're going to get it. Yeah, well, I like what you said. I mean, this is just that one example of, well, I can work with people in different time zones. I'm, I'm not, you know, it doesn't have to be nine to five. I'm not committed to when the office opens in the morning or uh, closes at night or whatever. Uh, and there must be a whole myriad of things like that that are, can be very enticing for, uh, for bosses. Right. Yeah. And so, so that's, you know that's women who are um, are working already, but then there are you know lots of women who are at home, and they're and they've been home um, left the workforce for usually for caregiving for children, and um, and then they'll say, well I I can't go back to work because I I can't you know work the sixty hours a week and commute and um, travel and you know all the things that are required. And why I wrote the book is because so many women who are either working or not working still believe that there's only one way to work. And that's, you know, they still think that the traditional corporate model is their, is their only option, when in fact there are six different kinds of flexibility now. Six different, we'll do, have we, we're, six different kinds of flexibility, that's what you're talking about, six? Yeah. So for so the six are you um you can work in a full-time job um and get, you know, different hours or, you know, work at home part of the time. So full-time jobs can be flexible as we were talking about before. Part-time jobs, there are many more professional part-time jobs than there ever were before. You know, it used to be that if, if women wanted a part-time job, they, you know, went to a local retail store or a doctor's office or, you know, there are thousands and thousands of women who are in real estate because that was like the go-to flexible job. But now you can find flexible jobs in any industry. And, um, and there are quite a few employers who look favorably on part-time employees because um, if they work less than 30 hours a week, they don't have to pay um, health care benefits um, for them. Um, but on the flip side, if you work 30 hours a week for an employer that has 50 or more employees, they are obligated to pay you benefits um, for that part-time work. So that's a that's a great option. Catherine, um, what about what are the professional bit. jobs that that professional jobs? Let's talk about doctors, lawyers, uh, accountants, where you can work part time that are that are flexible. Well, let's take physicians. Well, I um, I happen to know um, two two doctors. Um, one, one is a uh, very renowned eye doctor and she has young children and she, um, she only works two days a week. Um, I know a, um, uh, an anesthesiologist, um, who throughout her, you know, entire time of raising children, she worked on a part-time schedule. Um, I mean, today, um, it's not unheard of. 
um, to be able to um, to work in a part time way in these in these professional jobs. Um, I just met with a woman um, who's a partner in a, a very well known law firm. She has two young children. Um, she's doing M and A, you know, legal work, and that's that's like unheard of. You know, anything to do with mergers and acquisitions is like around the clock and eighty hours a week. I mean, she works at home two days a week. That wouldn't be the case um, even ten years ago. Um, you know, the the workforce has changed dramatically. So the workforce is evolving, I know, even longer than 10 years ago uh, with my kids, uh, the, what the teachers, they started allowing the teachers to to do job sharing. One teacher taught three days a week and the other taught two days a week. And then the next semester, they would turn, you know, change it around, teaching the same classroom. Uh, and I right. assume that that, yeah. So I assume. Yeah. That and that, so job sharing yeah. is one of the six. We talked about telecommuting. Um, working at home or working in a shared office space, so that's four. And then the fifth and sixth options are uh, working on freelance assignments. And you know, if you're a freelancer, and you know, let's just say you're you're a marketing pro, and you work on, or you're a graphic designer, and you you say, you know, I I, I can't work um, full time right now, but you know, even if a woman who's at home had one freelance project a quarter, she would be so far ahead of the woman who stays home for 12 years and never utters the word marketing. So freelance is, is terrific. Um, and there are experts who are saying that by 2030, that 50% of the workforce will be freelance. So, you know, it's no longer, it used to be, I was a recruiter, years ago, and um, it used to be that freelance people were kind of thought of as odd ducks that couldn't hold down a a full-time job, but now that's completely different. Now, you know, people are are freelancing at every level, in every industry, commanding a, you know, a a good rate, Um, and then the sixth thing is um, you know, slightly different than being a freelancer, it's being a, an independent contractor or, or, or a consultant. And these are usually people who, who want to develop an ongoing practice, not just do a, a, you know, an occasional freelance project, but you know, develop a marketing practice in a stable of, of clients. But those two things, being an independent consultant or a freelancer, I mean, you decide how many clients you want. You decide how much work you want to do. You decide, well, maybe I'm not going to work in the summers. I mean, it, it gives women an enormous amount of, of opportunity. So the, the workforce has just evolved in a way that really is very nurturing, I guess I would say, to women. It seems to be going in that direction. And, and also, if you think about millennials, they don't, what the average millennial the average millennial stays at an average job for two years and then goes on to next so that that's, right yeah uh, <clears throat> that includes women and men um what about women who go we talk you talk about like uh, work ends at age 65 not true women who want to return to work we've touched on it in their 40s 50s or even 60s how does that work for women 
if they haven't been in the well, workforce for a while. Yeah. The, I mean, it used to be that there was a hard, hard stop at 65. Um, but, you know, now that's not the case, um, you know, for practical reasons. Um, you know, the the last of the baby boomers are getting close to <laughs> retirement. Um, unemployment is very low. So, you know, many employers are facing huge talent and knowledge drains. And so they're no longer pushing their older workers out the door, um, and many of them are, you know, phasing them out gradually or offering them um, consulting contracts so that, you know, they can um, leave um, but not fully retire. Um, and so, so it's not unusual to be working now later and later and later. Um, both because you just want to, because a lot of people are not, you know, interested in, in just playing golf and tennis all day and, and want to, you know, continue to be stimulated, but perhaps in a more flexible way. Um, but also because there are an awful lot of people who don't have enough save for retirement. So it's, it's much more common um, to see older workers. So the woman who, you know, typically is in her mid-40s after staying home for what I've seen the average, you know, 12 years or even maybe, you know, all the way up to the mid-50s who decides, you know, everybody decides a different time point when when they feel that they have, you know, done their caregiving for their children and they want to return to work. They no longer need to feel like um, I'm too old um, because, you know, there are so many older people in, in the workforce now. And, um, and it is very possible to, um, to either return to work that you once did before or, or move into a new direction. So what do you do? I mean, you list, so, and you call them simple, but five simple things <clears throat> that women can do. We've touched on some of them, but, and, but one of them is, and I'm, I'm curious about this one, how to leverage LinkedIn. And this is you know, how to get in, in terms of securing the kinds of jobs that we're talking about. Um, how do you do that? Well, if you've been out of the workforce um, for 12 years, or more, um, it's likely that you have, you know, lost touch with a lot of the, of people that you once worked with. Um, so the first thing is that that LinkedIn makes it so easy for you to track down um, former colleagues, clients, you know, anyone that that you once uh, worked with. And, um, but that's like the first line of defense. Um, and that's usually not hundreds of people. Um, and women will often say, well, you know, I, I contacted all the people I used to work with and I, and I've talked to everybody I know in my personal circles and, and, you know, I don't have anyone else to network with. And that is just crazy talk because today, uh, with LinkedIn, we could all be networking all day, every day for the next five years on LinkedIn. Um, you know, there are, I think, 250 million or more um, uh, people on LinkedIn. Um, so the possibilities are, are endless. And just like with any job search, 
um, women who are returning to work, like, like any job seeker today, tends to think that the, what you do is you um, get your resume together and then you um, jump on the internet job boards and, and start shooting your resume to anything that sounds interesting. And that is a huge black hole. Um, and you need to do what I call networking research first. So if you used to be, you know, uh, a marketing manager on a, on a, you know, beauty account or whatever, um, you need to start building up your, your marketing um, uh, network again. And if you're interested in going back into marketing beauty, then you've got to start talking to people and insiders who are in that industry now and find out, you know, where could I start, you know, given what I've done before and the fact that I've been out? Um, what, would I, what would I need for uh, a marketing manager? Um, what skills and experience would I need for a marketing manager job today? Um, what, would I, what could I anticipate learning on the job? What would I need to learn new software? Would I need to maybe take a course? Um, and so in other words, Catherine, you're saying you have, I hate to interrupt you because we only have literally two minutes left and there's so much to cover and, and obviously there's some very specific kinds of things to do which are in your book. And so I want to, uh, in interrupting you, I want to mention the book again, Ambition Redefined. Um, by Catherine Solman and why the corner office doesn't work for every woman and what to do instead. I want to make sure everybody has the book because, as I said, we just covered um, parts of it, but there's a lot more, a lot more to uh, to to read. Obviously, could you give us a website that we can go to so that people can continue to get more information about you sure. and about the book? It's, yeah. Um www. Catherine K A T H R Y N spelled like Catherine Zox. Um, yeah. Catherine Solman S is in Sam O L L M is in Mary A N is in Nancy N is in Nancy dot com. Great, uh, Catherine. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, obviously, I love the topic, and uh, I have a lot of listeners who also are going to be very interested. So, good luck with the book, and um, great information. Thank you. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> 